You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. Good morning again. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, we're going to be in chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, but you, you need one, we'd love for you to dive in it. We've got an usher in the back. He'd love to bring you one. If you just slip your hand up, he will bring you a Bible this morning. We want you to be in the Word of God with us as we kind of talk about uh, what we're going to talk about this morning. So, um, I don't know if you're like me, but I love optical illusions. I love, maybe you're scrolling through your Facebook feed or whatever, and that picture comes up, and they're like, hey, find this thing there. Or, hey, there's actually two pictures inside of this one picture. Can you find both? Well, in, in 1930, a psychologist named Edwin Boring introduced the painting uh, entitled My Wife and My Mother-in-Law. Some of you maybe have seen this picture. It's a very famous picture. But inside of this picture, there are actually two pictures. There's one where the, the, Edward drew a picture of his wife. And generally speaking, we can make this one out the fastest. You, you see her. No, nope, not yet. Back. You're skipping ahead. There we go. Thank you. Um, you kind of see her, her face on the left. You have that little nose and maybe an eyelash. You have the kind of scarf thing on the top with the, the feather. That's the very first picture. Most people see that quickly. Raise your hand if you see the young, the, yeah, the young woman. Okay. Here's the second picture. It is the picture of the mother-in-law. And I'll help this kind of point, out, point some things out to you. What you see, this red arrow right here, that black line across that is the woman's mouth. That is the mother-in-law's mouth. So if you can imagine a woman kind of looking like this. Uh, let's go to the next one. Maybe they can help this out. This right here is her nose. The Brit, kind of the, the, the bottom of her nose right there. So raise your hand if you see the picture of the mother-in-law. Okay, good. All right. It took me like 25 minutes. Like Jeremy's like over here preaching a sermon to me of how you cannot see the mother-in-law. And what's, what's sad is I knew the picture. Like, I didn't just Google this this week and found it. Like, I, this picture came to my mind, and for some reason, I could not stop looking at the wife as opposed to the mother-in-law. But even after Jeremy kind of saying, hey, look, here's where it is. Even, I even showed Hunter, and Hunter's like, oh, yeah, bro, 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 that's where it is. That's the mother-in-law right there, and this is the wife. And I'm like, yeah, go away. Like, you shouldn't have got it that quick. Why can't I get it? But even after someone explaining and explaining and explaining, for some reason I still couldn't get it. It actually took me, I had to turn the paper kind of sideways and looking at it from an angle, and I was like, oh, there she is. But what I think is so interesting about optical illusions and things like that is sometimes it requires us to have a different perspective. We can be looking directly at the thing, but for some reason we are not understanding what we're seeing. A few years ago, I was having a conversation with a guy who was kind of gloating about having read the Bible completely three different times. Like every single word, front to back, reading the Bible three times, and going, yeah, but most pastors haven't done that. Like, and he's you know, being kind of you know, that guy. And so I'm like, yeah, maybe, maybe you're right. I don't know. And so I asked him, so what did you learn? Oh, nothing other than why do people follow Jesus? And I, I found it interesting that a guy can read the Bible cover to cover three different times and yet still not see the truth and the, the ultimate story that I and millions of others see. I mean, he, he was looking at this thing and reading it, but yet he didn't see the truth inside of Scripture. 
So this morning what we're going to be doing is we're going to be unpacking and, and kind of beginning to understand what it means to understand the Bible. What the Bible is. And maybe at the end of this, hopefully what you and I will see is that the Bible isn't just a book. It isn't just this thing that we read like the same way we would read The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn or some other great novel out there. It stands alone in its own kind of quadrant of the world and in life, but yet we can read this thing and what it's going to require from us to truly understand is something that you and I can't control. For us to really understand the Bible, I mean truly deeply get it at our core, it's going to take a new perspective. And that new perspective is a revelation from God Himself. And so we're going to unpack this, and hopefully by the end of it, you kind of understand what that means. You might be going, what, what is Chris talking about? And, and Lord willing, at the end of the sermon, you get it. But we're in this series called Rethinking the Church. And Paul is about to make a statement to some people in Thessalonica that's going to hopefully cause their ears to kind of perk up and like, oh, what do you mean by that? Because that's what it does to my heart and my ears today to go, when he says this, what exactly does that mean? And my hope at the end of today is that we'll understand what a revelation from God looks like, but we'll also understand that we don't have to carry the burden of winning people to Christ. We have to carry the burden of being faithful to the mission that we've been called to take that message. Because the results are out of my hand completely. I did not win anybody to Christ. Jesus did. I may have led them to the Lord, but I didn't cross the finish line for them. I didn't give them their faith. I, I, I didn't do anything. I just took the message. Or maybe you led someone. Maybe it was a, a son or a daughter or a friend or a coworker. Maybe you led someone to Christ at one point. But here's the great news about that. You're not responsible for that. And you go, why is that great news? I want that win. Well, it also means you're not responsible when they tell you no. You're just responsible for, for being faithful to the mission. So, if you'll stand with me as we read God's Word, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 13. And we're just going to read one verse, so it'll be quick. And also, or and we also thank God constantly for this. That when you when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it what as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. You may be seated. So right here, we need to understand and break this down. Paul says that when they received the Word of God, they received the Word of God, they didn't accept it as the Word of man, although it came certainly from the words of man. But they accepted it as what it really is, the words of God. So imagine getting a package and it's coming in a a, 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 a blue box, and you get it, and you go, oh, this is a red box that I received. Others around you are going, no, heck no, that's a blue box. Can't you, are you colorblind? Some of you in the room are going, yes, I am colorblind. But that's okay. You get a blue box, you see it as red, and yet it's blue. This is what Paul is saying. You receive the Word of God, although it came through the words of men, but you received it as, it, as what it really is, the words of God. 
What is Paul talking about here? Well, specifically in context, he's kind of referring back to a little bit of the Old Testament Scriptures and the Gospel, meaning the message of Jesus, that He came to redeem and restore all mankind through His sacrificial death and burial and resurrection. How do I know this? Good, I'm glad you asked. Thank you so much for coming today. I appreciate that. Acts 17, verse 1, it says, now, now this is, let me back up. This is Paul. This is a story of Paul going to Thessalonica. So what we're going to see is what Paul did and how he referenced his trip in Thessalonica. Acts 17, verse 1, it says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, this is after they get kicked out of Philippi. They go to two different cities. They came to Thessalonica. So this is the third city where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So a Jewish synagogue gathering together on the Sabbath. And Paul, because he was a Jew, went in as was his custom. So he had done this on a regular basis. And on three Sabbath days, meaning for three consecutive weeks, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying... This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So Paul, traveling, gets kicked out of Philippi. We talked about the boldness of Paul to continue on the mission. He goes to two other cities. We don't know exactly about the fruit that happened in those two cities, but he moves into Thessalonica, and as soon as he gets there, as was his custom, he goes into the Jewish synagogue and he begins to preach why Jesus is who He is, quoting and referencing the Scriptures. So what are the Scriptures here? Paul is clearly talking about the Old Testament passages. So, what, what I want us to kind of unpack today, and we're, this is going to be a little different than normal, is we're going to unpack three things of what this means for us in this passage. The first thing is, what are the Scriptures? We need to understand, to, to truly get what Paul is saying here, we need to understand what the Scriptures are. The second thing is, we need to understand, once we know what they are, are they reasonable or, not, or are they logical? So what are the Scriptures? Are they reasonable? Are they logical? Meaning, is there a way to understand them without having this faith? Like, if they see a blue package and I see a red package, can the blue package ever understand what the red package has? And could the red package ever understand what the blue package has? Hopefully that makes sense. And if not, stick with me. We'll get there. And then the third thing is how do we accept these Scriptures as the Word of God, like the people of Thessalonica did. So, he comes, he reasons from from the Scriptures. The first question we're going to answer is, what are the Scriptures? Well, first we have to understand that the Scriptures are two parts. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we're going to start with the Old Testament. The Old Testament, or as Paul would have called it, would have been called the Tanakh. I think I have an, an image of how to say that word, right? The Tanakh. And this is an abbreviation uh, in, in Hebrew of what this would have been called. So the first, t- the, first letter, the, fir- the first letter T would have been the Torah. These are the books of the law. right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And this is the foundation of the Old Testament. The first five books. We would call it the Pentateuch. Because in Greek, Pentateuch, we'll talk about that in a you know, different one because I'm not going there. But the books of the law. First five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, this is the books of the law. It's the foundation. The next one is the Navim. These are the prophetic books. You have the major and the minor prophets. One's not better than the other. One's just bigger than the other. And so you have, all of, you have Jeremiah, Isaiah, 
Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi. I'm not going through all of them because it's a bunch. But you've got all of these books that make up a, a big chunk of the Old Testament. So you have the T from Tanakh, Torah. You have the N, the Nevi'im. And then you have the Ketavim, which in Hebrew kind of is a, a direct translation of as writings. We would kind of look at it as the poetry books. These, these are the, the wisdom literature. That's the K in Tanakh. So the Old Testament is made up of these three different books, we'll say. Three different categories. And in all, it's 37 different books. And so the question is, okay, when were they written? What, what are these scriptures? If, if Paul is referencing these 37, what, when were they written? How do, how do we get them? What, what are they? Obviously, this is a massive topic. We don't have, you know, i got 25 minutes or something like that to go through all this. So we're going to be hitting it as quickly as possible. So if you have more questions, I'll have some resources and an email this week. I'll send you out. Uh, but really quickly, the Old Testament books were basically written between 1400 B.C. and 400 B.C. Now, any of you history majors out there or history buffs might be going, that's not really that old. And so you, that might rise a question in your mind to go, well, if, if it's not really that old, how, how, how do we know that this is the right thing? Well, here's the answer. It's actually quickly dispelled. There's, there's two reasons. Number one, Think about oral tradition. So you, you might go, wow, you know, the, the Rig Veda, which is the, the Hindu text, is older in, in dating years. The manuscripts we have is older than the Old Testament. Well, okay, sure. Number one, I'd say the Hinduism book of, of the Rig Veda isn't necessarily a doctrinal book. Like, it's an epic story. There's not really teachings of who God is per se and how he would relate or she would relate to the people of God. It's really just an epic story. Not that different than the Epic of Gil Gilgamesh or Homer's Iliad. So most theologians and historians would kind of go, I don't even know if it is technically the way we would look at religion in the other ways because it doesn't have core doctrines. But we'll continue on. The other books, so you have the Rig Veda, you have about four or five old Egyptian religions that have some older writings. So, oral tradition, first off, you know what that is, it, it's not like the game of telephone. So it's not like I picked up the thing, I told a story, and then the next person did, and the next person did. If you ever played that game, the end up story ends up very, very different than the story going through the rest. What it is, is it's more like an active tradition that was kept very sacred. They actually record this in the Bible. The Song of Moses, the, the Shema, the, the Psalms, many of them were oral traditions that you would see throughout time. And so the people of God kept it very near and dear to their heart. So if one family maybe forgot a word or slipped a new phrase in there, other families would correct them and rebuke them and go, no, 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 no. This is not how that worked. Matter of fact, they did a study at one point on the efficacy of the oral tradition and they found that it was actually pretty efficient. Like, most of the time, there was no mess-ups in translations. It was almost perfect. And so you have the oral tradition, number one, is why your writings aren't too, too old. Number two, think about what the Israelite people went through and being captive and being taken captive. Just go to the Exodus story, right? When you were to take a people captive, would you have let them keep their culture? The answer is no. You would have burned all their stuff. You would have broken anything. So if they had writings, what would the Egyptians have done to their stuff? They would have gotten rid of it. When the Babylonians took them over, when the Assyrians took them over, when the, the next person and the next person and the next person. So while we only have a certain number of writings that are 1,400 years old, dating that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not the oldest. There are historians wide and, and, and far that will tell you 
with a, a much more experience and, and, and knowledge than myself that the, the Hebrew Bible has a great footing to stand on. Like foundationally, it is very solid. So 1400 to 400 BC, it's written, compiled, put together. Then in 250 BC, approximately, it's converted to Greek, called the Septuagint. And so that's when you get Pentateuch, and that's, it's important to scholars, but I just thought I'd throw that in there. So that's kind of the Old Testament. It comes together through the prophets, through these individual writings. It's put together by the people of God, and they're saying, hey, these writings right here are the authoritative Word of God to us, and so we can take them as His words, and we can trust them. Then you move to the New Testament, and you basically have two different types of writing in there. You have the Gospels, you have the Epistles. Now, there's a third type of writing that enters both into the New Testament and the Old Testament. We talked about it this past Sunday called the apocalyptic. You could easily fit the apocalyptic into the epistles, so it's pretty easy to just do that. But the apocalyptic would be like the book of Revelation, the latter part of Daniel, some parts of Ezekiel, and a few others. But for our, our purposes this morning, you have the Gospels and you have the epistles. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the story of Jesus' ministry and His life. Then you have the epistles. These are the letters like we're reading today from 1 Thessalonians. Paul and others handcrafted letters to the church to say, hey, Here's how you like live out this thing called the faith. Here's how you do this. When were these books written? Well, some would say the first one was written between 45 and 50 A.D., and the last one was written somewhere between 85 and 90 A.D. And so what this gives you as a timeline is you have some letters being written as early as 15 years, actually 12 to 15 years, after Jesus' ascension into heaven. And so that would give you some authority because if somebody started passing out a letter that didn't jive with literal eyewitnesses, what would happen to that letter? It would be cast out. It's not going to work. The, le- the latter letters, a tradition had already been uh, happening where people would pass these letters to different churches. Peter and Paul and other apostles would have visited these churches. And so when you get some of these things called the Gnostic Gospels, if you're sitting out there wondering what those things are, Google it later, or maybe don't because it's dangerous, but... There are some Gospels out there called the Gnostic Gospels putting out some things that aren't true, like the Gospel of Thomas, right? And so what they would do is they would take these authoritative, guaranteed, like Peter came and visited my church. I have Peter's letter right here. We received the Gospel of Thomas. There are things in Thomas's letter that do not jive with Peter's letter. We also had Paul's letter as well. So we compare the one of Thomas to the two to three other letters that we already had, and we go, there ain't, there's something wrong with Thomas's letter. Like, let's, let's throw it out. And so for the next couple of hundred years, these letters are circulated around the churches. As they're being birthed, they get new churches. They stand up and read just as we began this series six, seven, eight, nine weeks ago now. We stood up and read the first letter of the Thessalonian letters. That's what they would do. They would get it and they'd read it. And this would be the authoritative word and God. And so they, 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 they pass these letters around canonization is a fancy word to say here's literally what fits inside this book happened around the 350 mark somewhere in history and the biggest thing you need to learn from all of that is that God's hand was on the entire process here's something I asked someone if they're struggling with understanding and can we really trust the Bible do you believe that God can do a miracle because if God could create the world the way we believe he did if He could send His Son to die the way, the way we believe He did, if He could put you here, if He could turn water into wine and the church said amen, if there's a lot of things that He could do as miracles, why couldn't we believe that He would 
give us the exact letters that we want us want him to or he would want us to have like why does this have to be something we go well i can believe most of it but i don't know if i can believe the authority of this why you can believe the miracle that you're here you can believe the miracle that god left his throne came down in human form put on the creation so to speak lived a perfect life died was ridiculed was spit on resurrected three days later so that you, the creation who despised Him, rebelled against Him, could be reunited. But it's hard for us to believe that God did this. Like this, this is a, a, a miracle right in front of us that God would give us this truth. So what are the Scriptures? They are the 66 books of the words of God straight to us. They are the authoritative Word of God, and we'll get into a little bit more of why you can trust them on that side. So the next question is, are they reasonable or logical? So we'll look at some historicity really quickly. So that, that's a fancy word to say. We'll look at the history around it. So if you follow historical accounts from people who had nothing to do with the Bible, what you will see is that uh, when the Bible was recorded, oftentimes they'd write a letter that you know, they would say, in the year of King Darius, and they'd Say off a thing, or the year of our Lord, you know, this, this number, this thing. When you compare them to other historical documents that really didn't have a whole lot to do with the church or other religions, what you'll find is a nice little timeline that will come smack down with each other. Now, there's historians out there that will debate it, but, you know, you Google something on Reddit about, like, who's the best basketball player ever, and you're going to get 60,000 answers anyway when there's really only one Michael Jordan. So, you know, there's all kinds of opinions out there. And the internet isn't necessarily going to be the right place to find your best answer. There are people who have given their entire life to studying history and studying how the Bible fits inside of that history. Or, a better way put, how history fits inside of the Bible. And so there's a lot of different ways we could talk about this. I could bring up a guy named Eusebius and Herodotus and Josephus and all these other names with isses, and you're going to go to sleep on me. But what you just need to learn and trust is, hopefully... My many years of seminary and the guys who have gone well before me, smarter than me, put together a lot of study to go, I think the Bible has a pretty good historical account. Okay, so next. Whew, am I talking fast? We good? All right. So uh, if maybe you're questioning some things like, oh, what, what about flo the flood? What about Pangea? What about some of these other issues? Ice Age, all these things. There's a plethora of resources out there from theologically sound men and women who have studied the Word of God, who know a lot about geography and history and could go, here's exactly how that timeline could work. Oh, I'm an old earth, I'm a new earth, all these other things that you're going, what are we talking about? We can dive into at another time because they're deep, they'll take forever, and some of you will go to sleep on me. So what I need you to know is there are resources out there, I'll get them to you if you're struggling with it, come holler at me, all right? So, does the Bible have a strong historical narrative? The answer is yes. Another thing when we're talking about, does it, is it reasonable, is it logical, a question that I think pops up sometimes is, how does this Jewish you know, kind of compilation of books, the Old Testament, work with this New Testament thing? Well, I think the first thing you need to understand is that neither one is more Jewish than the other. They work together. They are, they, they, they are friends, so to speak. And I don't know how you could truly understand the New Testament without having a basic knowledge of the Old Testament. Here, here's why I say that. 
We sang a song just a minute ago. It's amazing how God works this out, Hunter. I didn't tell you I was going to say this. So we sang a song called Behold the Lamb. So that means God, Jesus specifically, is the sacrificial lamb. Now, if all you ever read was the New Testament, that's going to probably seem really weird. You're probably going to say, why do Christians talk about blood so much? Why does it, y'all, you are weird. Are y'all a cult? Like, right? There's an aspect, if you ever think about it, we talk about blood a lot, and it's weird. But it's because if you go back to the Old Testament, what is in blood? Leviticus said, our life is in blood. And so what God does is he lays out this system. When we sinned and when we fell short of the glory of God, he separated us from his perfection, his holiness, his glory. And he said, in order to be reconvened, there has to be a sacrifice of blood. And so once a year, the Day of Atonement, we would go and we would put together our best lamb and we would have a sacrificial lamb and then we'd have a scapegoat. And so the, the, the lamb would be sacrificed and the blood would be poured out and it's this really weird thing that happened. And the priest would enter the Holy of Holies and he would reconvene with God and the blessings of God would come amongst all of the people. And here's what Jesus does. He becomes that perfect, spotless lamb. And so without the understanding of why that lamb is needed, I think we can have a decent understanding of Jesus, but we're going to read the New Testament going, what? what? Huh? Why does this make sense? How does this work? And so the New Testament and the Old Testament are together. Jesus actually says in Matthew 5.17 that He didn't come to abolish the law, but He comes to fulfill the law. And there's more texts that prove that the New Testament and the Old Testament work together. Matter of fact, Jesus affirms them in Matthew 19, verse 1. He says, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed Him, and He healed them there. And Pharisees, these are Old Testament religious, like think of them as pastors. They're priests. They're holier than thou. they got all the law. They know it. They're smart. They're a little hard-heartened though. Pharisees came up to him, Jesus, and tested him by asking, hey, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They're trying to trick him up. He answers, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So right here, Jesus refers back to the Old Testament. So anyone that says, ah, the Old Testament, New Testament don't work, Jesus says they do work right here. In a conversation to win people, he goes, have you looked back at the Old Testament? Paul affirms them. In his opening remarks to the people in Rome, he says, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets, meaning the Old Testament, those prophetic words, the Nevi'im, in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David. So Paul confirms it. Then he tells others that we should affirm the Old Testament as well. As he's writing to his kind of protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and and, uh, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And not only does Jesus affirm it, Paul affirms it, and then Paul teaches others to affirm it as well. But what about Paul's letters to the Thessalonians where he's saying, hey, this, this is the authoritative Word of God. What if this is Paul himself just kind of taking on this, this, this calling, right? I don't know if this is enough proof. Well, Peter then affirms everything Paul's saying. In 2 Peter 3.15, he says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, 
just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. It's not Paul's wisdom. It's wisdom given him by the Lord as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Reasonable logic. like These things are sometimes hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. So sometimes people get a blue box and they're going, why did you get a red box? But hold on. I got a blue box. You got a red box. I don't understand what's going on here. Peter says this very clearly. That there will be some who haven't had a revelation from God and when they get the Scriptures, they will not understand it and so they will twist the meaning. And they will defy what God has intended as they do with the other Scriptures. So Peter affirms Everything that Paul and Jesus are saying, that the Old Testament and the New Testament are not not these separate things. They are one thing. And we're getting to how this applies in your life, so stay awake with me, alright? So are they reasonable and do they have logic? Absolutely. The last one. How do we accept these Scriptures are the Word of God? Like everything we talked about with history, the, the, the fact that they have a logic, the fact they have a flowing when they were written, all these different you know, things that we're talking about. How, how do we know that someone just didn't twist them as life went on? Well, one, one historian wrote that we could kind of summarize, we could put the Bible, if we lost all 6,000 plus manuscripts, original manuscripts of the Bible, which by the way are more than any other writing known to man, if we lost all 6,000 somehow, we could put together the Bible from the early church fathers' quotations of the Bible. So that means the people who were instructed by the apostles, who then instructed others to record histories that at times would not have helped their cause. People like Josephus, who was a Jew, who would not have wanted to record positivity about Christianity, recorded, recorded these things. Like he talked about who Jesus was. And so we know that he was a real person. We know that these early church fathers quoted the Scriptures. And so what we see is that they had a high understanding of Scripture and that it's importance. So number one, they believed it, so we should too. The people who were there in the moment believed it. We need to understand that the Bible certainly has an apologetic nature about it, meaning it can defend itself. It has a, a logical reasoning about it but people will not be won by your logic let me say that again because i think sometimes we we believe that we can convince someone to give their life to jesus and that is not what scripture says scripture doesn't say that we can scripture tells us to defend our faith Scripture tells us to be like the Bereans who, who dive into God's Word and understand it and know it and to be able to give a defense for our faith. But Scripture does not speak to the fact of winning souls to the logical coherence of the Bible. Here's what it speaks to. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 says, I planted, this is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth, Apollos watered. So he's using this, this illustration <coughs> excuse me, of a seed. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. 
as a pastor, I have the inclination to when we want to see more people be baptized, I have the inclination to go, I need to preach better. I need to lead our staff better. We need to hit that note in that song at this exact moment so that the emotions will pull them in. And God says in His Word, it's not Paul, it's not Apollos, it's me. So the burden of winning a soul is no longer on me. And you know what that does for me? It frees me up. Like I don't have to be stressed out about, man, was the message good enough? I don't ask that question. I did when I was a rookie. And I might, some of you are going, you still are a rookie. <laughs> the question I ask now is, was the gospel clear? Because my words are not the power. His words are the power. Nicodemus approaches Jesus. He had seen a lot of impressive things that this guy was doing. And he approaches Jesus to begin to ask questions of like, how are you doing these things? In John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus replies to him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Because right there in that moment, you, you and I would be thinking, how do I, like literally I think Nicodemus says, how do I crawl back into my mother's womb? Like how, how can I be born again? And Jesus responds, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What we need to see is that the Bible is the Word of God and we will never fully grasp that picture, that grand picture, until we know and believe because God awakened us. Because God gave us a new perspective. We can stare at that picture of the woman all day yearning to see the mother-in-law. But until Jesus wakes you up and gives you that new heart to have eyes, like literally Paul had scales fall from his eyes to see who God was until that moment happens, this ain't nothing but a book to you. I know that was a little Ebonics. This isn't anything but a book to you. That's all it is. We need, but we need, we need God to wake us up. To, to do this miracle in our lives just as He's done it for others, just as He did it for His Son. We need Jesus to give us new eyes. To give us a new perspective. So, what do we do with all of this? What does this mean to us? Why, why does Paul, when he leans into this church and he says, hey, I'm glad you received these words, not as my words, but as the words of God. You and I are sitting here and, and you've heard things like, it's out of your control. It's up to God. And you might be going, well, man, what if I want to hear more from God? I just got to wait on God to wake me up? His Word tells us, it doesn't come back null and void. And if you knock, He answers. So the question is, in a genuine heart, when you're looking to hear from God, 
Are you looking to hear the answer from God or are you looking to hear the answer you want to hear? Because the Lord says, if I come to Him, the desires of my heart, when, 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 I, when I strip myself and I come to Him and I say, God, I want what You want, He will give me the desires of my heart. He didn't say, hey, when I come to Him for that next rent check, or when I come to Him for an A on a test, or when I come to Him for this fix in my life, or this solution in my life, He'll fix it. He says, if you'll come to Him with open arms and say, your will be done as on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus says you can have it. And so when we read and we understand what Paul is talking about, what we should see is that God has freed you up to do the ministry. We've been talking about rethinking the church, and part of this idea that we're looking at in the Thessalonican people is that they were freed to do ministry. They won the peoples around them, the Macedonians and the Achaeans, and people further than that, because they were not worried about the results coming back to them. They were worried about the results going to, the God, to God. And they said, you know what? We're not going to be tied up in how this happens, but we know that God has called us to do the mission, and so we're not going to fret when somebody tells us no. We're not going to spend all this time worrying, being, uh, worried about being told no, that we're not even going to go ask. Matter of fact, we're going to be freed up and say, you know what? I'm going to go ask people, do they want to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because if they tell me yes, it's God's win. If they tell me no, maybe he gets them at a later point. But it's not my no and it's not my yes. Like I'm freed up. It's not a win or a loss for me. It's all a win because I'm following after the things that God has for me. I'm committing myself to the mission of God. And what you need to know is that the mission of God on your heart, believer, it should be this, to take the gospel. Because if you don't, how does it get there? Romans 10, beginning in verse 13, says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you call on the name of the Lord with a full heart, knowing who you are outside of Christ, you will be saved. He goes on, How then will they call on Him whom they have never believed? And how are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? We mess up that word in English. It's evangelize. It's a Greek word that doesn't necessarily refer to this little podium place here. It really is a word of proclamation, of speaking. And so when you hear, how are they to have heard whom they've never had someone preach? It isn't because Chris didn't go. It isn't because that missionary overseas didn't go. What he's saying is, are you going to preach? Are you going to speak the Gospel? Because if you don't speak it, how can they hear it? And how are they to preach? Continuing, he says, unless they are sent. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. And here's the beauty of our task as Christians. The success is not yours. Know that the burden of people's salvation does not fall at our feet. Our burden is to be faithful to the mission. That's why you need to begin to exercise those faith muscles. That's why you need to begin to talk about Jesus. And, and here's the thing. 
we shouldn't necessarily have to convince each other to do this. I don't have to convince you to talk about things that are passionate in your soul. That new deal that you got on some discount, those, that ticket you got for this thing that was a great price, or that thing you're just really enthused about at the office or whatever, like, you're going to tell me about that. Like, you're going to be stoked to tell me about the cool things going on in your life. Are you going to be stoked to tell me about Jesus? Are you going to be stoked to tell me about what God's doing in your heart? I love that this message just happened. God brought this to fall on Baptism Sunday because this message, this, this understanding that the Bible is the authoritative Word of God, it's inerrant, it, it, it comes to us and it moves through us, is a message that baptism really sends to all people. Like this is God's declarative message to the people in the world. That if you will come, He will save you. So as I wrap up, there's, there's a couple of things I want you to think about. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have two opportunities to help you equip yourself to begin to take this message. On October 6th, we're having, a, we're having monthly midweek. There's a prayer time for us adults where we're going to pray for our city, the lost people in our hearts, to be pushed towards evangelism. And then four days after that, on October 10th, I'm bringing a buddy of mine in named Brad Marchman, and he's going to lead a, a quick class, a quick time, a training together right after church with lunch called No Sweat Evangelism. And we're not going to like make you sign a card to say you're going to go you know, preach the gospel 15 times as soon as you leave that class, but maybe this is the first step in your life to learn how to begin to evangelize. Because how are they to hear unless it's been preached? And how, is, how are they to be preaching if they've never been sent? This is us sending you. Officially. In case you were wondering, this is that moment. Step up. This is what you're called to. Because rethinking the church isn't about just coming into a building. We're gathering to equip, to encourage, to challenge, so we can scatter and love God, love people, and invest in His kingdom. Last thing. Maybe you're sitting there this morning going, oh, that was all cool, Chris, great, fantastic. The Bible's inerrant, it's, it's all this, that, and the other. What does that mean for me, the person who's struggling today? Well, if you're in Christ, here's what it means. Seek His face. Seek His Word. If you're not in Christ, here's what it means. Seek His face. Seek His Word. Because it doesn't come back null and void. He's changed my life and He changed two people's life this morning. So as I said earlier, here is much water. What's holding you back? God, I pray that through Your Word, You'll speak to our hearts. You'll declare a message to us that we'll never forget. We won't rely on the thoughts of man or the words of man, but God, we will lean on the wholehearted understanding that You have ordained and are working things out for Your good. So God, we rest in that truth right now. We rest in the fact that You are sovereign and that You draw all men to Your name. If there's anyone in this room this morning that's struggling to believe, 
God, I just pray that You'll send the Spirit and You'll convict them and You'll draw them and You'll make them a son or a daughter in Your name today. Move our hearts. It's in Your Son's name I pray. Amen.